Hi, this is Lindsay Jacobs. And this is Rachel Weisskittle. Welcome to another episode of the Jero Psychology Podcast, where we talk about all things Jero. Thanks for joining in uh, and listening to today's episode. I know we promised at the end of our last episode on disparities and discrimination in the COVID era that we would be publishing our next episode on the same topic, focusing primarily on race and ethnic disparities and discrimination in the COVID era. We have that episode lined up. However, Rachel and I had the wonderful opportunity to talk with Dr. Eleanor Feldman Barbera and interview her on what her experience has been like working in New York City in long-term care. So she is a long-term care psychologist working in the epicenter of this pandemic And we were really fascinated with the information that she shared. And we wanted to get this interview out as soon as possible. Yeah, this interview showed us so many different clinical innovations that she is using in her job in real time that we have already been able to apply. And so we wanted to really push this out while we could and while we are putting the finishing touches on our next episode. I want to introduce Dr. Eleanor Feldman Barbera. Before we jump into the interview, so I mentioned that she's a licensed psychologist in the long-term care industry. She's an expert in her field. She has decades of experience offering innovative solutions to problems that affect both cost and quality of care. Dr. Barbera counsels older adults and their families as they navigate aging and the healthcare system. And she also speaks internationally on aging and mental health issues. She's the writer of the award-winning McKnight's long-term care news column called The World According to Dr. L. And in this column, she offers a mental health perspective on a medical environment. Dr. Barbera has authored a large print guidebook for residents and their families called The Savvy Residence Guide, which I have, and it's a wonderful book. And her work has been featured in American Medical Directors Association, Caring for the Ages magazine. Well, thank you so much, Eleanor, for being on the podcast today. Rachel and I are really excited that you um, that you were interested in coming on. Um, I appreciate that you want to hear what I've been up to. We always start with this question, how you got interested in working with older adults or how you got interested in working with geropsychology. And I feel like I'm really familiar with your work because of your wonderful blog that you have on McKnight's long-term care news. But I don't know if I know this story, how you got interested in working with older adults. Okay, well, I'd be happy to tell you. So I first, when I did my internship, I did it at a state psychiatric hospital, and I really loved it. It was fascinating and very, you know, it was just exciting and interesting, but it was uh, a long time ago, and they were closing down psychiatric hospitals, and I kept getting these notes that I might be bumped. It was a state hospital, might 
be bumped. And so I went and I started working in what was a newfangled thing, which was managed care. And I found it to be pretty boring because I missed all the excitement of being on the units. And, and it, but it got me thinking like, what's gonna be something that's gonna last me for my whole career? So I started looking into working with older adults because I knew there was gonna be a baby boom into you know a senior boom and um i found it to be just as exciting and fascinating as working in the psychiatric hospitals except in the psychiatric hospitals everybody is focused on mental health but they're not so great about the physical health in general and in uh, the nursing home everybody's focused on the physical health and so i bring a lot of value to working in this environment because I'm one of the few that have that mental health focus. Yeah. You know, I mentioned your blog on McKnight's long-term care news, and I've been following that. I've read some of the entries that you've written about long-term care during the pandemic. Uh, and I know you work in New York City, and you've really provided some incredible glimpses of your experience working in the nursing home during the COVID era you know, sharing what work life has been like for long-term care employees and what life has been like for the residents in the COVID epicenter. Could you describe what your job looked like before the pandemic? Just, you know, what a typical week would look like for you? And and I'm curious how your experience, your role uh, has changed, if it's changed as a long-term care psychologist in the pandemic. Sure. Well, by and large, the things, most of the things that I do are the same, but um, what changed is the content. So uh, when it was a situation where we were anticipating that we could have the virus in our, within our walls pre-pandemic uh, onset, you know, everybody was very anxious. And so I was dealing with a lot of people that were feeling quite nervous and then in that situation if people are in that situation it's helpful to you know reassure them about the steps that people are taking to avoid the virus coming in but unfortunately you know the walls were breached as they were in many many facilities around the country and so then there was the a great deal of loss and fear and you know it was very nerve-wracking so then you know we were dealing with how to provide services in a basically a dangerous environment and so that was very challenging and then um after that we had a which i don't think most people will have but some will um the situation where covid residents are coming in i'm in because i'm in new york and there was that period when uh the governor said you know bring in the covid patients then um, i was dealing with a lot of people who were in quite a bit of shock and um it, and and had experienced a lot of loss and uh, the staff were very nervous. And then now it's settled down quite a bit again. Uh, but, you know, all along, in, uh, in addition to seeing the residents, there's been an element of trying to help the staff through whether, you know, checking in when people seem upset, things like that. Yeah. When you say settled down, are you speaking in terms of folks 
starting to adjust to the climate, uh, the environment, or is it that you're seeing, you know, numbers of COVID positive cases come down or number of losses decrease? Um, well, that's a good question. So, so first of all, yeah, the numbers of COVID positives have uh, decreased because we're not taking in anybody that's active COVID anymore. So that's great in terms of, you know, that, but we're, but now we're being tested, you know? So I think in the beginning, there was this sense that nobody is helping us and, um, you know, you're in it on your own, not, you know, I, 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 I the facility itself and, and what many, you know, many facilities, five-star facilities, they did every single, every single thing that they could. They followed all the recommendations, but the recommendations were behind the virus. Um, and then of course there are some facilities that, you know, they don't have enough PPE, they don't have the resources to get it. So I, that's, that was really frightening and demoralizing. And yeah. so now when I say it's settled down, people are less likely to feel that they're quite as actively putting their lives on the line when they go into work. Mm -hmm. Even though people are still asymptomatic, people are still testing positive. I mean, it's New York City, any of these big cities, I think you're gonna see it or in any area that has um, a, a spike in the cases. Yeah. Yeah, um, you have touched on this, but I was curious how your location in New York City has been influenced on possible changes that you've experienced in your job over the pandemic, and whether you think your experiences would be different if you were based in a more rural long-term care center. Well, I think because we were hit in, in this country hit first, it was very frightening and um, people didn't know how to handle the whole thing. And there was a lot, of, you know, there's a lot more information now. But I think if it's in a rural area, I don't know because I haven't worked in a rural area, but I would imagine that it would be very difficult because you would know a lot of the people, you know, there would be more connections. So it's not just somebody that came in that you knew, you know, from the nursing home, you might actually also know them from your personal life. And that would be, I think, very difficult to manage that loss or, you know, or that care. Mm -hmm. You talked about inadequate PPE, which has been a huge issue across the United States, um, not specific to, to just your setting. I'm curious, are there other concerns or fears that staff or you have had, you know, across this pandemic so far about providing care or helping residents or their family members during this time? I think that everybody is afraid of getting the virus. So the PPE is a very large concern, and I strongly believe that the guidelines around PPE should be based on what's needed, not what's available. Mm -hmm. so unfortunately, sometimes that's not the case. As, as a psychologist, it's been challenging just to deal with the extent of um, the emotional devastation. Uh, you know, uh, people are dealing with the physical manifestations of the AIDS, you know, are going in and they're dealing with when they were dealing with active COVID. But you have to expect that every single person is potentially 
has a case and, and that we might have a case. So I think there's that fear that you might get it. And equally, I mean, the people that work in long-term care are the most caring people you could possibly imagine to go into this field by and large. They're worried that you might give it to somebody, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that's another big fear. I remember when I was working in an outpatient setting, uh, right when the pandemic started revving up in Massachusetts when I was living there. And I kept thinking to myself, I have to think about the care that I'm providing as like crisis management, Every such high levels of stress and anxiety and sadness and all of the things that go along with isolation and such uncertainty in the world. And I had actually... I had done some crisis management in response to a natural disaster back in 2011 when a tornado hit in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. But that experience was so different because, you know, that was that was one thing that happened, a tornado. It was very devastating. But once it hit, like it was over, you know, you were you were just dealing with sort of the devastation afterwards. But this situation is so different because you're in it. You're in the thick of it. There's just there's constant worry about getting covid and about infecting potentially other people. Absolutely. And. For, you know, many of the staff in these places got it or their family members got it, you know, so people were showing up for work, but they were leaving somebody that was sick at home. And, you know, how do you deal with that? You know, it was very complicated. And um, and, and the whole thing was I found for myself was pretty traumatic. I also had I mean I've been through 9-11 in New York City I was living in Manhattan at the time and you know when I worked in the psychiatric hospital it was the AIDS epidemic but this was really quite different because it's like being surrounded by a problem that I am dealing with myself in addition to trying to help people through it yeah so a lot of the check-ins with staff were like what are you doing to take care of yourself and then for me and I think anybody who's in this environment needs to really find people to talk to about what's going on, save people, because it becomes like um, civilians versus the people that are, you know, in the middle of the COVID battle and not everybody will understand what's going on and can tolerate it. You know, mm -hmm. so I felt for me to talk to other psychologists that were working in the situation and um, to reach out for support. That makes a lot of sense. How has the pandemic and infection control procedures impacted long-term care residents? And how has maybe the isolation in relation to that impacted residents? Well, first of all, I want to tell you that I don't normally wear this a hat like this, <laughs> but I have been, you know, needing to cover up with my masks. Uh, if for listeners, I am wearing a Disco ball, <laughs> and I also it's have awesome. a bling, hat. yeah, a bling hat with a lot of um, pins on it. That's one of the workers made, and then I bought some colorful pins. And the reason that I did that is because I've had to change my whole look. I now, instead of you know, dressed up and the whole psychologist thing, I am wearing scrubs, 
and masks. And so I think for the residents, you know, that I do, I wear the hat because that way they can recognize me. But for them, they're seeing a sea of people in masks and gowns and hair coverings. And so, um, you know, that is, can be disconcerting. I mean, I guess they're getting used to it by now, but uh, we try to distinguish ourselves in whatever way we can. And, um, you know, the, they, the rules with not having the family members in have been super difficult, really, really hard. And also, I do a lot of uh, short-term rehab work right now. And so I'm getting people that were in the hospital with no visitors. So, you know, you can imagine they had some sort of trauma at home, then they went to the hospital and they didn't see their family member for a certain amount of time. And then they came to the facility and they still haven't been able to see a family member. So the people who had phones throughout this are cognitively, emotionally did so much better than the people who didn't have a way of contacting their family or lost their phone in the hospital. Those people, especially when we had getting the COVID cases in, were really untethered. So I did a lot of, I started to wear my phone in a diving case, you know, a waterproof dive case around my neck. And that way I could clean it and I could take it and I would call family members. And boy, to call someone's family member for someone who'd been in the hospital and they hadn't spoken to them in weeks and FaceTime, very oh. uh, emotional, very gratifying as a care provider. And, and I felt a good use of my psychological services. You know, I'm very practical when it comes to psychology. Yes, these are such clever and compassionate ideas that you've been using to help your patients. I love everything you have described, the hat and using the phones. It makes a lot of sense to me that there would be such a remarkable difference between patients who have access to a phone to contact family members and those who do not. And I have seen how unfortunately common it is for someone to be hospitalized without having had time to pick up their phone, perhaps because they were in crisis, you know, when they were taken in or just because it got lost in transit or shuffled around somehow. And so that seems like such a, a meaningful way to make a big impact. One of the things that I find quite challenging in the this environment is really as a psychologist, and it's probably the same for most of the psychologists, when you work in a long-term care, you are uh, really there like one-on-one -on -one therapy, but sometimes you see, most often, you see other things that you could do, except that's not technically your job. But there were people that I did adopt, you know, unofficially. And I'm thinking of this one man who's just, when he came in, he was really out of it and dazed like i would say i said hello when i went to visit his roommate and he didn't even respond and then i saw him come out of his room and he had a um he was in a recliner and i said hello again like a week or two later and he nodded and i just i looked i looked him up i found out he was an artist i think i wrote about this in mcknight i found out he was an artist I Googled his work and I printed out one of his pictures and I hung it in his room and I just kind of kept trying to tether him to his former life. And, you know, there were a lot of people working with him, but, you know, he's come back to himself. It's remarkable. 
Oh, that's wonderful. It's it's wonderful, and it's um, you know when you first see somebody that is so withdrawn, you might not know that they could come back out again. So many of them can come back out again if you help to bring them there. And I can imagine that the humanity of that type of work is even harder these days with the pandemic and what maybe like the sanitary or like what you're allowed to bring in versus not bring in. And as we had touched on, like the the visitation limitations and to find ways to work around that and to bring them back out in connection with their former selves. Yes. And with regard to that, right now they have this, you know, there's been no visitation at all, except in certain compassionate cases. And now they're trying to open it up. And I really think that, like, for example, in in New York, we can have visitation as long as the facility has been 100% COVID free for 28 days. When that will happen, I don't know. I don't know. That could be a really long time. So I think it's important for facilities to kind of consider other options. You know, like you've probably seen things where they have like a plexiglass or a plastic sheet and the people can come into, you know, want a family on one side, resident on the other and um, see each other through this plexiglass. Or I read something about um, there's a, a one where you can actually put your hands through the plastic, like plastic arms, and then hug your loved one through the plastic. You know, it's not ideal, but it's, you know, I think we need to look for middle ground of how to connect people because it's going to be a long time for many places to be 28 days COVID free unless they, I don't know, come up with uh, perfect tests and, and we get things under control. Yeah. So we talked about how residents have been impacted in different ways. What concerns do residents and families have right now that you are helping them with? Right now, I think a lot of them are quite concerned. The residents are concerned about not seeing their family members. It's depressing. It's distressing. Uh, that's hard. So you, you hear stories of people that are separated. There was a woman who was here. Her husband was a long-term resident. She was here for short-term rehab. So she fortunately was able to see her husband very frequently. But when she got discharged, she can't see him anymore. You know, so that's a very difficult situation. Um, another, I read a story about a lady who went and took a job as a dishwasher in the nursing home so she could see her family member. <laughs> I people saw that. We, yeah, <laughs> I saw that too. I think we shared that with each other. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. It's yeah. booked any lengths for sure. Um, and then I think, of course, um, family members are very worried about what the conditions are for their loved ones if they're not around. I mean, that's why I think it's really like the psychology role is super important because we get to know people on a deeper level, generally speaking, than someone who's giving a medication, you know, once or twice a day. We can see more subtle signs of a change in cognitive status and notify someone. And those are the kinds of things that a family member would say my husband, my wife, they're not acting the way they were. So I think that's part of the role of the psychologist to pick that up. If only we were on staff and we could do that for everybody instead of just the people that they sent to us. Mm -hmm. 
you talked about wearing the hat to distinguish yourself from others, which I think was is just such a creative idea. I, I don't think I would have thought of that. I'm really amazed. Um, and then also using your phone to help residents contact their family members and use FaceTime. I'm curious, have you found or uh, other staff found any additional strategies to help the residents and their family members during this time to reduce loneliness or increase their connection to people? Yes. Well, I know that the recreation therapists in general have been doing a lot more with the phone calls. Like that's become an activity where they go around and they help people make the video calls and things. So that's been extremely important. Um, they are doing, trying to run activities where they can engage residents with each other. You know, I saw a photo of somebody who was doing bingo, like doorway bingo. So the staff member was in the hallway and there were people down the hall, each, you know, in their doorways, which were far apart from each other and they really enjoyed it. So I think the activities department have been doing a great job with those kinds of things. And then I also uh, see that the social workers and, uh, you know, there's it's often the administrators, people will call the families and keep them abreast of what's going on, which I, it really reduces family anxiety. And of course, anything that people could put on their websites, facilities put on their websites to let people know what's going on. And that way, they just feel at least more secure. It's kind of like how Cuomo was uh, giving these reports every day, you know, helping people relieve some of their anxiety as they were going through the situation. Yeah, our, Rachel and I were talking. I want to say it might have been our first episode of the this COVID mini series that we're doing about how getting information regularly is so helpful. It just makes you feel a bit more at ease and more connected with what's going on. Right. And it's, um, a, you know, you know that you're going to get information at such and such a time. And so you can say, you know, you don't have to panic, you mm -hmm. know, it's like when you're doing therapy and uh, you tell somebody, I will see you on Wednesdays. And then they know, they have that appointment. They will see you on Wednesdays. Wednesday's their day. It relieves a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to ask if we could turn back the clock and predict months or a year in advance that this pandemic would occur. What ideas do you have about how nursing homes could have better prepared? What are some systems or policies or practices or other things that you think would have helped if those were in place before the pandemic? Well, I would go back, take it a step further and go back to making sure, you know, as a national policy, you know, I, I think that we absolutely should have a coordinated national and even international effort to deal with pandemics. Because to leave this to the individual nursing homes is foolish and ineffective. But as an individual nursing home, you know, of course, having a stockpile of protective gear, I think that for any pandemic, any future pandemics, and they say there will probably be more, it's a good idea to have supplies on hand. 
and they're talking about the importance of having a robust workforce. So the working short staffed becomes a very big problem when you're te being tested every week for a virus and you know a certain amount of people are testing positive and then they're out for two or you know several weeks and there are people that are sick you know you, you need to have a, a, a deep bench in order to be able to manage during a pandemic and not incur a lot of extra costs and of course the government could certainly step in and provide extra staffing which they have and i'm so glad to hear right now that they're going to be doing a point of care testing you know that's a that kind of thing Whatever the next pandemic is, will take them a little time to develop, undoubtedly, but as soon as they can, because older folks are vulnerable and um, and they deserve to live. And, you know, it spreads into the community. So it's a very big, uh, very important for any country to make sure that they take care of their older adults. Mm hmm. I can see how it would be so useful for nursing homes to talk, <laughs> to learn from each other. You know, if there was a way to also learn from in other countries what those nursing homes have been doing. Is there any way to have communication like that as it is now? Well, there are scientific organizations that are international. So... Uh, the, and the UN has done some things and, you know, I think we need to, with a pandemic especially, we should be thinking globally and learning globally and the scientists, the psychologists, researchers, those people are far less concerned with the politics than they are about the science. So I think that we can bridge that gap by connecting scientists. I could not tell you all the organizations that are out there. I'm sure there are many, but um, I bet if you Googled international scientific geropsychology organizations, you would come up with quite a few mm -hmm. if that's something that your listener is interested in. What do you think your team has done really well in response to the pandemic? Well, overall, I've been very impressed by my specific team. I mean, the biggest thing that they've done is show up. They have shown up. They've, I mean, I know how I felt when I was coming in, especially in the beginning, like literally cold sweats on the way to work. I was like, what am I doing? Is this wise? Is this foolish? But, you know, I came in and I showed up and I was with my teammates and they came in and they showed up and we were there for those residents and we followed everything they told us to follow. And that I think was the thing that was the most important that we were all in there as a team working together to help the people who needed us the most, even though it was scary. Yeah, it was really brave of everyone to show up every day. And because I was reading how a lot of people were temporarily moving away from New York, let alone going into work every day in New York. Yes. It, and also it was hard, I think, for a lot of people in the nursing homes where they were, there was a lot of a lot of accolades for the people that worked in hospitals without so much an acknowledgement of what was going on in the nursing homes themselves, which was difficult, you know? Yeah. 
I imagine that going through something like this with your colleagues, your coworkers, it's something that is certainly can um, help build trust. And I guess to try and find a silver lining in all this, perhaps it will strengthen maybe an already quite strong team that you have. I think that everybody has a lot of respect for each other for having, we've been through a war, really. And I hope that the war stays at bay, but you know, there's no guarantees. So we're still vigilant. Yeah. That reminds me of what you said earlier about how visitors will be allowed in nursing homes and long-term care centers after 28 days, did you say? Of no- Three days, staff and residents. Staff and residents. And how at this point in time, it is really hard to say when that would happen. So things are kind of at bay right now, but they're so extremely difficult and compounded by the fact that it's hard to know when the current state will end and when things would be able to change again. Right. And I mean, I'm, I'm glad I do not have to be the one to make the decision, really, because while it is heartbreaking to see families separated from each other. It's, you know, it's not, I see it at work. I see it in my family. I see it in my friends, you know, with older parents, you know, it's, it's here, but it's personal. It's devastating, but also knowing what could happen, you know, it's, it's like having a, just a little spark. One person COVID positive could just set off a, an awful, chain reaction. So, you know, it's, it's uh, tough to make those decisions, to make those calls, which is why I think we need to come up with some plan B options so that you don't have to be like all or nothing. You know, you can visit your mom through the plastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I saw in one of your recent, your recent writings that you talked about uh, a nursing home, I think it was in France, that created a bubble of sorts. Yes. How would you describe that? Um, I, I can picture it in my head, but it's like it's something separate from this, the building, right? Yeah, it was like a tent, I think, with a bubble. I don't know. I think you could do it in a lot of ways. You know, I, I do think I, I look at the, the lobbies of some, I think about lobbies of any nursing home. You could set up some sort of bubble room. It doesn't have, it's not, it doesn't have to be a permanent bubble room. There's a lot of creative people out there. I'm sure we can come up with some good ideas just for people to see each other and be near each other. I think makes a lot of, it makes, it can help a lot. Of course, you know, you've got the costs of making a bubble room and then somebody to staff the whole thing and plan it, who's gonna be there and then clean it off in between. But look, they're doing it in, you know, if you, in New York, if you go to get a manicure right now, they have plastic in between, you know, and they're, you know, people are coming up with ways to manage this. So we certainly could for this reason, far more than a manicure, though I'm happy I, I got one. <laughs> <laughs> it'd be four months. <laughs> um, are there organizations that listeners could join or like volunteer services or different ideas that you have um, that, that listeners could help with if they are listening to your experiences and wanting to help alleviate burden or you know improve the quality of life of staff, residents, or families. Uh, well, I 
I'm big on food, so I always think that you know if, if somebody has some extra funds and the inclination to send some food to the resident to the staff of the nursing homes, I think that's always a very nice thing to do the way that they did for the people in the hospitals. Uh, but I, I really strongly believe that psychologists should, if they're inclined to get more involved in the social aspects of our work, you know, I did work, do a lot of one-on-one um, -on -one work with residents early on without any idea of what was going on in the larger world, larger in terms of the long-term care world or thinking about the politics of things. But they say the personal is political. The things that are going on in the nursing homes, you know, I do think that psychologists are in a good position to advocate for the people that they work for with the social aspects. So whether it's doing research that proves that the psychological interventions are helpful and of course save money because that's what a lot of people will, will move a lot of people. Um, that's extremely valuable. And if you do that research, send it to me so I can write about it in my column. And. Um, <laughs> And uh, also, I think, you know, psychologists could run for office in local government. And I think there should be more connections in the local community to the nursing homes, because we're really a local resource. If you have your older folks, they're going to go to the nursing home that's closest, as long as it's a decent nursing home. So, you know, th there's a lot of ways that psychologists can help. Oh, and I do also suggest for anybody interested to join Psychologists in Long-Term Care, PLTC, uh, because that's uh, a very knowledgeable resource for uh, psychologists to be connected to the geropsychology community. Yeah, that's a wonderful organization. They have such an active listserv and everyone is just so open and welcoming and they are willing to share resources and join in on conversations about really important topics. I really enjoy that organization. Yeah, it's a good way to find out what's going on in, in the business around the nation and w widen uh, your sense of community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it seems like it would be especially helpful during these times to feel connected with other psychologists who are going through such challenges as what you've described. Absolutely. And it keeps you abreast of um, policy changes. Which, you know, if you work within an agency or some company that's providing psychology services, they will do that function. But if you're an independent psychologist, it's extremely valuable to know what's going on and what changes are coming down the pike. Well, you've given us a lot of stuff to think about. This has been really enlightening for me. I've enjoyed talking with you today. Before we go, I did want to just talk about a couple of different resources. Your your blog on McKnight's Long-Term Care News, your column, I think is something that everyone should go check out. I have really enjoyed reading your column and uh, also your book, which I have right here. Oh. I don't know if you can see. <laughs> Do you want to uh, just share talk a little bit about the book that you wrote it's called the savvy residence guide everything you wanted to know about your nursing home stay but were afraid to ask 
I love it. So I wrote that book because it's it's basically 20 years of psychology services in the pages of a book. So it's a large print guide for residents and families and actually for students who want to get the lowdown on what's going on in the minds of residents and what it's like to be in a nursing home. And I have a, a bunch of friendly characters in there to help uh, guide them through uh, the different scenarios that you might encounter. I love this book. This is something that I think such a fantastic resource, especially for residents, you know, when they first get into a a nursing home or rehab setting, it can feel just so overwhelming. This book is excellent at orienting folks to the setting. Well, thank you so much, Eleanor, for being on. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you and uh, I appreciate your interest. Dr. Barbera mentioned point of care testing and I wasn't familiar with this when we were interviewing her. So I did a little digging and looked it up and there's was a, an article published in McKnight's long-term care news on point-of-care testing kit. So point-of-care testing is described as rapid on-the-spot tests, 20 tests per hour. So they're meant to be really quick so that nursing homes can test both residents and nursing home staff very quickly, rapidly, and repeatedly. I guess the one downside of this, um, this was uh, published on NPR There was a study that was done looking at COVID-19 testing at the Cleveland Clinic. And in this study, it was found that there was a concerning percentage of false negative. So the error rates of the point of care testing can be as high as 20%. So in this NPR article, it talks about how ideally test would be at least 95% reliable. Wow. And yeah, and that's just not the case with uh, point of care testing. So I was really impressed by Dr. Barbera's creativity. And yes. I had, it had not even occurred to me how in long-term care, you know, all of the staff are wearing PPE going into residents' rooms and how it might be difficult to differentiate, you know, one staff from another. So I wish we had a picture, but Dr. Barbera had this super cool sparkly hat that helps the nursing home residents know that it's her that's Mm -hmm. entering the room. It was like a a Newsies like cap, like what they wear in the musical, but it was a disco ball. (laughs) It was awesome. (laughs) And I love that she was wearing it the whole interview. And it wasn't until like 30 minutes in that she was like, oh, by the way, the reason I'm wearing this hat is for clinical purposes. (laughs) I was just like, you just have amazing style. (laughs) Very memorable. And she talked about some ideas for how to reduce loneliness in nursing homes. And I really liked that idea of providing some sort of setting with this plastic cover or something so that just that human contact or touch mm-hmm. is so important. Something like that, I think, would be really amazing. Yeah. And I think that she is right on the money when she talks about the future of care and how this experience of COVID-19 it isn't something that we're just going to experience and then remember. It's something that is going to change 
the way that we interact with each other and with our nursing home and long-term care residents forever moving forward. Mm -hmm. And having designated spaces designed preemptively, even if there is not a pandemic, of space that is for safe contact between residents and family members is what is going to be the wave of the future, I think. And she was just very insightful into just how this needs to be viewed in sustainable ways over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. I found an article that was published in JAMDA. The title of it is uh, Loneliness and Isolation in Long-Term Care and the COVID-19 Pandemic. And the authors provide some tips or suggestions for how to decrease loneliness of the residents in long-term care. And the very first suggestion that they provide is to for the staff and the residents to wear a name tag. And this was make this made me think about Dr. Barbera's hat, mm-hmm. um, so that folks can differentiate who is who, know who they're talking to. But I imagine that this might be difficult for individuals who have vision impairments. Yeah, so that sparkly hat is right on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and it's also helpful probably for staff members too. To be able to work with someone that you can recognize down the hallway versus having to wait until you are up close. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a way to bring a little bit of joy, I think, to work during what's a pretty tough time. Another suggestion in this article is to provide nursing home residents with a computer or an iPad, help them purchase one or help them operate them so that they can actually see their loved ones when they're interacting with them. Some of the other final points that they made were that family members might communicate with one another to make sure that at least one person was calling their loved one in the nursing home every morning to wish them a good morning, every afternoon or every evening to say good night. And Another idea they did mention coming to the the residence window. They also talked about sending cards, sending letters, sending artwork from grandchildren, for example, to their loved ones in the nursing home. We will provide the citation for this article for folks to go and look at because there are some additional recommendations or suggestions that we didn't mention here. That's it for today's episode. Next episode, we are going to resume with our discrimination and disparities in the COVID era. It'll be our part two. Remember that you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are found. You can give us stars or likes if you want to start up a social media conversation with us. We definitely encourage that. You can tweet us at the Jero Podcast on Twitter. And you can also reach us by email at www.thegeropsychologypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you. Bye.